Hello. I'd like to talk to you today on the subject, Where is Heaven? And I'd like to begin with a rather, uh, uh, well, absurd, anomalous kind of story. It was a story that was popular during the Second World War of a man, a soldier in the army, who one day was seen going around picking up bits of paper, looking at them, and then he'd say, this isn't it, and he'd throw it down and go around and pick up another, this isn't it. And he kept this up for quite some time until finally they recommended him to the camp psychiatrist, thinking that, uh, well, he had some problems. And so when he came into the psychiatrist's office, he uh, went to the desk and picked up one piece of paper after the other, and this isn't it, this isn't it. So the uh, psychiatrist finally recommended him for a medical discharge. And when he handed him the discharge, the man looked at it, he said, this is it, and ran happily out of the door, um, out of the room. Well, we're all looking for solutions, and we try one thing after another. We hope to find what we can define as heaven in the sense of it being our happiness. We want to find fulfillment. We want to find happiness. And we think we're going to find it in this little thing and that little thing. We think we're going to make a lot of money and then, oh, how great everything will be. And then we get it. This isn't it. It didn't work. If you will look across the board at people in every line of activity, you will see that in no sphere of activity is, is, there uni, is there unanimity on whether it's really a good thing or not. Nobody will say writing is the answer. In fact, most writers would rather you didn't think that. They don't want all that competition, and so on down the line. But more than that, once they have it, it's sort of like uh, Ian Fleming who said that when I achieved fame for a while, it was fun, but now it's just ashes, old boy, just ashes. And that is what it is in everything that people do. You may find one person or another, a rare human being, who has attained what he calls fulfillment in his work, in his interests. Most people's fulfillment is an expectation, a hope for the future, the anticipation of something rather than the actual fulfillment of it. And once they attain that, then they're looking for something else. This isn't it. This isn't it. There is, however, one sphere of activity in which there is unanimity, and that is in the spiritual. That when people have spent many years praying, meditating, seeking God, you don't find any of them throughout history. You don't find them saying, well, it's just ashes, old boy. There's nothing to it. Forget it. Because they, and they alone, have found the real heaven. Jesus expressed it very well. When people were asking him where heaven is, he said, it's not a question of low here. Lo there, he said, the kingdom of God is within you. We've got to find heaven inside, and then we find it everywhere. One woman I know, after a state of um, meditation and ecstasy that had come as a result of that, found that for several months afterwards, she was always in a state of bliss and just feeling wonderful. And she went to... Yellowstone Park with a group of friends. She herself was very musical. And they heard a boy play the violin. 
in some performance there, some program. And afterwards she said, wasn't that the most beautiful music you ever heard? And the people looked at her, her friends, just sort of in stunned amazement. They said, but he didn't even play in tune. And she was so happy in herself that even this rather poor rendition was just beautiful to her. Now, I don't mean to imply beyond this that it makes you blind to objective realities. It was that she was in the first flush of something she'd never known before. But in fact, it doesn't make you uh, lose your marbles, you might say. It doesn't render you incapable of judging things as they are. But what it does is somehow help you to find a cause for joy in everything. When you see somebody suffer, do you sit there and smile? No, not like that. But you can't help people in their suffering if you sink to their level of suffering. You only will reinforce it. If you want to show compassion for somebody drowning, you don't jump into the water and drown with him, but you do throw him a life belt. And in the same way, when you have this joy and you see somebody suffering, you feel all the more desire to help him to come out of his suffering. It's exactly the opposite of what Jean-Paul Sartre, the French philosopher, said. Um, in this world that bleeds, all joy is obscene. Just the opposite of that. When you feel joy, it isn't something wrong that you shouldn't feel and feel guilty about, rather. It's something that you can give to others to keep this world from bleeding. The real benefactors of the human race have then been those people who attained that real state that everybody's looking for but think to find it in fame, money, possessions, popularity, power, and so on. They finally found it. They're unanimous in this. There's another interesting thing about comparing what the saints have found with what other people have found. Science even. In this day and age, we speak of science as being the, the uh, way shower in the search for truth. But every few years you read in the paper something that science discovered that uh, has discovered that uh, completely throws overboard some of their basic theories um, ideas of how the universe was made, ideas of what matter's all about, and so on. Every few years, there hasn't been unanimity in science. There's been a slow growth, no doubt. But there's also a statement made by many scientists that they aren't really looking for truth anymore. They're looking for what works. And what works in one context may not always work in another. And they're not completely at sea, but they're a great deal more at sea than they expected to be at the end of the last century. In one field, however, the same one I talked about before, we find unanimity also in the definition of what truth is and what life is all about. And you find these unfortunately rare, but numerous when you look back over the centuries, you find these people in all religions, in all cultures, in all countries, in all ages. And what uh, St. Thomas, uh, Thomas Akempis, I should say, wrote in Imitation of Christ, you'll find the same words being used in uh, the Bhagavad Gita in India. You'll find the same words being used by Buddhists. In fact, people who are really deep in the spiritual teachings find that they have a great deal in common. They're speaking the same language because they've had 
the same vision of reality. <clears throat> the true custodians of religion are not the people who go rushing around beating big drums saying, come to my religion, come to my church, it'll save you, and arguing and condemning anybody who disagrees with them. The true custodians of religion are the mystics, the saints, the people who have attained a higher vision of divine truth. And what you find is that none of them disagree with each other. They all talk about the same experience. St. So, uh, John Vianney, a very, not, not by any means illiterate, but by no means sophisticated priest in France, um, the curé d'art, as he's called, he spoke of God's joy. He said that if you knew how much God loves you, you would die for joy. Now that kind of expression can't come just out of a book. That kind of expression can't come from having heard a good lecture. That kind of saying has to come from something lived and experienced. And this is what saints in all religions have talked about. He's not, it's not as if he had made some peak discovery that was added to the general lore of the human race. When science speaks and makes discoveries, it keeps adding. What the saints have found is an absolute truth that has never changed, that can't change. There was a lovely story in India of a saint whose name was Haridas. It was a name he took, which made him sound like a Hindu, um, the follower, the servant of, of uh, Krishna. Hari is uh, the thief of hearts, is the, uh, that meaning in uh, the name of Krishna. And because, however, he was born a Muslim, the ruler of his particular state, who was a Muslim, considered him a heretic. Uh, he'd, he was a backslider. And since he wouldn't recant, he condemned him to be tortured until death. And so they took Haridas, this was in the town of Puri in the state of Orissa, they took him and uh, suspended him by his thumbs from a tree, and there were uh, several of the men who were supposed to torture him to death with big clubs just beating his body. And of course he must have been experiencing great physical pain. But he felt so much joy in his soul. We marvel at the compassion of Jesus who said, uh, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We, we see the greatness in that. Well, Haridas too was great. He said, may these people, his torturers, feel also the joy that I feel. He had no animosity toward them, only forgiveness. Even he wanted them to be blessed. And the joy that he felt was so magnetic, so real. It wasn't some sort of sweet expression in the eyes. I'm sure that his, his face showed the pain his body was experiencing, but people felt the influence in their hearts of this spiritual joy that Haridas was feeling. And they began, if you can believe it, they came to witness an execution, and suddenly they began dancing in that joy, just dancing in the joy of God. And these torturers finally couldn't stand it anymore, and they dropped their clubs, and they too were just dancing in God's love dancing in that joy. Well, for there to be a joy that powerful, it has to be something real. Because the higher reality always has power over the lower. That's why when we explode the atom and dis discover the underlying reality of the atom, which is energy, 
because we've found something deeper than the atom, we've got power over the atom. Every time you take a step down to a, an underlying level of reality, you have power over the more superficial reality. And that is how saints are able to perform miracles. One time, Yogananda was standing on a street corner in Philadelphia, and three hold-up men came and pointed their pistols at him and demanded that he give them his money. And he said, of course, and he gave it to them. He said, but there's something I have that you can't take from me that's worth a great deal more. And they looked at each other, sort of like this, and what's the matter with this guy? Is he crazy? And then he looked at them with love. I've experienced that love from his eyes. I know what power there is in it. It's not an expression, it's an energy. It's a real force. And these men began to tremble all over, and they dropped their, his money on the ground, and they, they said, we, what have you done to us? We can't, we can't live like this anymore. And then they were so sort of confused that they ran off into the night. But that power is something real, and it has power over this world. When you can find that heaven within you, then you will find that it gives you a power to carry heaven with you wherever you are. And even though you know that you're walking in this world, in what for many people is hell, because they have hell within them, and you see suffering and you see pain, you see darkness. Nevertheless, you have something so wonderful that you know you can change their lives, and you do your very best to change them. And so irrelevant is this body that you're willing, like Jesus, to give up your body in order to help other people. Jesus was perfectly willing that his body be sacrificed for the welfare of others. And any saint who has achieved that vision, he knows this body isn't real. There's so much in, 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 in Christian tradition, we might call it a mythology, of the suffering of Jesus, the suffering that he had to undergo with his physical body up there on the cross, well, yes, it was a suffering, but good heavens, how many other people have suffered that way? The fact that he embraced it willingly is a great thing, no doubt. But I can't believe that he was suffering for that, because if that was what he was suffering for, he was not master over this body. When we're, the heaven we're talking about that is within us, once we achieve that state, then the sufferings of this world cannot touch us anymore. They can't affect us in the same way. So that even if on one level we might feel them, inside we're not, we're not affected. I'm completely certain that the suffering Jesus experienced on the cross was not for himself, but for other people. Even his statement, forgive them for they know not what they do, knowing the suffering that they would draw to themselves through their blindness, but much more. You know, when you love something beautiful, let's say you've seen suddenly the most beautiful view that you've ever seen in your whole life, standing on a mountaintop, and you look around you, and you want everyone to enjoy that view, but all of them, every one of them is blind. That's a bit of a pain, isn't it? Because you know what they could enjoy, and yet they don't, because they can't see. In the same way, Jesus, loving the Father, loving God as he did, 
Would it not have been his real pain that other people refused to accept that love? That in hatred they rejected the love that God had shown, bringing him, sending him into this world, that they, they could be so locked in darkness, in hatred, in all the, the evil of human nature, that they would want to hurt it rather than welcoming it? That would be the pain that he experienced. And yet it was a pain that was out of compassion. It didn't touch his joy. That joy was always there. It, he couldn't lose it. I remember one time Yogananda <clears throat> went through some physical pain. And I remember him saying to us afterwards that I tried to keep, I kept my mind down to this body so that I could experience pain the way other people do. But when one has realized God as he had, it takes as much effort of will to keep the mind down to this body as it does for us finally to reach up to that level. That's the natural plane on which they exist. Jesus may have kept his mind down here out of compassion for a while on the cross, but inside he had that joy. He couldn't but. I'm nowhere near their level, but I can express even in my little life something of that, that I went through a period of great suffering in my life, and all I knew consciously was that suffering. And yet that was the period during which I wrote all the happy songs, some of which you've heard. And people used to say to me after I lectured, they felt joy from me. And I thought at first, joy? That's not possible. And then I looked more deeply and I saw that underlying that superficial pain that I was experiencing, there was a joy that hadn't been touched, a joy born of many years of meditating every day. If you want to find the joy within you, if you want to find the heaven within you, then what you have to do, quite obviously, is go within, isn't it? Get away from all the distractions and things that pull your mind outward and say, you're going to find heaven in Hawaii, you're going to find heaven in La Paz, you're going to find heaven in a big bank account. Get away from all that and get back into yourself. Learn to be still. Learn to meditate. You will find in meditation as you do it, begin with a little bit, a few minutes every day, but the more you do it, the more you'll find that it becomes so strong, that uh, so deep that there will be a joy just sort of welling up within you. And it'll be a joy that will never leave you. Under all circumstance, it will always be there, guiding you, inspiring you. It's a conscious kind of thing that tells you what to do. You know how to help people. You feel their sufferings, and you know how to give them that joy. You know how to give them understanding. Again and again, you will see in your life that if you meditate daily, your life will change, and you will carry about with you truly a portable, a portable paradise. Joy to you.